Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles, arms held wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It is Friday, the 10th of October, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen uh, on the Faith Radio Network. We're so glad that you're here. If you're just joining us, we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. And so um, so let's get going. What is happening in the world and what in the world would God have us to think and do in relationship um, to what's happening? That's the, the conversation set before us. But let's begin with today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day. You can sign up for the Growing Your Faith verse of the day at MyFaithRadio.com. And while you're there, I'd love for you to share um, with us about your pastor. It's Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to encourage your pastor. In order to do that, you need to tell us who your pastor is. So if you'll go to MyFaithRadio.com and share that information with us, um, we would be grateful, and we would love to um, encourage your pastor with a personal note and uh, a gift card for a cup of coffee. So there you go. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Matthew chapter 5. We have worked our way through the Beatitudes at the opening of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew 5 through 7. And so today we arrive at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And uh, let me warn you in advance, um, Jesus is fixing to get down into your business. Mm -hmm. So here you go. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Um, So Jesus is um, asserting himself as an authority over the law, which for um, the people of his day who recognized the law as um, the supreme authority given by God, particularly through Moses uh, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, but then in the hundreds of laws that um, that over the course of time the Pharisees developed as derivatives of the Ten Commandments. So when we're talking about the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus is basically saying, I'm the authority over the law. You've heard that it was said, um, you know, by my father through Moses delivered to you at Sinai, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I'm telling you, I have authority over the law, and I'm telling you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is going to be subject to judgment, which I have to imagine that for the Pharisees hearing it made them angry. <laughs> I'm, just saying, I'm just saying that was probably what uh, happened in the moment. So what Jesus is calling us to here is a higher righteousness, a law of love beyond the law, a law that is written not on tablets of stone, Um, as a checklist to be kept, but on the human heart as a lifestyle to be lived. Jesus is talking about living not under the law, but actually living above and beyond the law. He's calling us to a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees of his day, the rule keepers of our day. And then um, after he says, you know, this is 
this is the new law. I mean, it's me and it's a law of love and it's a higher righteousness. You know, we would shake our heads and say, well, I can't do that. I mean, I, I, I get angry. And, and then we would also say there, you know, there are some forms of righteous anger. Not all anger is unrighteous. And Jesus would agree with all of that. But you have to remember what he's ultimately going to give us. He's going to do everything that's necessary to make it possible for us to live as he calls us to live. He knows that we're going to get angry, and he knows that we're going to be subject to judgment, and he also knows that he's going to be the judge. He offers himself in love that the judgment against sin might be satisfied. He offers his righteousness imputed to us by grace. He offers us us the active presence of his own Holy Spirit that we might moment by moment um, be made more conformed to his very image. I mean, that is amazing grace. So when we read these verses like Matthew 5, 21 and 22, um, and we shake our heads and say, well, I could never live like that. I'm going to be angry, and therefore I'm going to be subject to judgment. Um, We need to explore things like, what is anger? When is anger righteous? What does the Bible say about anger and the kind of anger that leads to sin? What does the Bible say about the righteous anger of God and what makes God angry? And when Jesus says judgment and describes us as being subject to judgment, what does he mean? And when we say, when we use, uh, you know, things like the Apostles' Creed, when we say Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, well, what do we mean when we say that? Jesus is going to come again. The second coming. I mean, the first coming of Jesus was, you know, coming as a human being from heaven to earth and from earth to the cross and the cross to the grave and the grave to the sky, right? He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning sacrificial death on the cross. The second coming... When Jesus returns, he's coming as the judge, the judge of all mankind. Now, that's good news for Christians, but it is bad news for non-Christians. And so we want to be people who proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ and the grace of God in Christ for everyone um, in order that the, the, the second coming of Jesus will be good news for everybody. And if you want to read about, you know, what Jesus says about his own Coming as the judge, I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46 today. Where in the word are you today? Maybe we could be in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about what he's going to do when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. At the end of the book of Revelation, the very final words are a prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you praying that today? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. All right, uh, helping us connect what is happening in our own hearts and heads with what is happening in the very heart of God. Bruce Ashford is going to join us next. We're going to talk about the reality of anxiety and depression, and he's going to share a little bit more about his own experience of both. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Bruce Ashford is back. We are um, continuing a conversation that we started, I don't know, last week, a couple of weeks ago, recently. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, Bruce has been sharing very publicly about his own experience of depression. I hope you find it as an encouragement as well. You can find the series of articles at bruceashford.net. Bruce, good morning. 
Good morning, Carmen. It's great to be back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, one of the pieces that you posted is navigating uh, this heavy fog and offering tips for friends and family members. Um, could we could we walk around in that a little bit today? Sure. So for those of you out in uh, Radio Land, I'm a 48-year-old man who uh, served for 19 years as a professor at one of the largest evangelical seminaries in the world. And out of those 19 years, 11 years of that, I was uh, provost and dean of the faculty. Uh, and yet, uh, about 14 months ago, uh, almost to the, to the day, I was being released from a uh, six-week intensive therapy in New Mexico at a, a trauma center there where I'd been diagnosed with uh, PTSD, uh, general anxiety disorder, and depression. And my depression had driven me into a deep despair, had uh, served as a poison, I think. My depression did, served as a poison for my character strengths and the, the, the better aspects of my personality. And, and it served as a fertilizer, uh, I think, for my character flaws and the, the worst aspects of my personality. And so I, I have experienced depression as a, a, a major phenomenon. And if you're out there in Radio Land and you have experienced depression, you probably understand that. And if you have not experienced uh, depression, you probably uh, you, you probably don't. But what what I wanted what we're going to talk about today is how uh, you can be a good friend or family member to a depressed person, uh, whether they are a person of longtime Christian faith or uh, or 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 not. Um, so, you know, the experience of depression. If you if you've been friends with a depressed person or your family member a depressed person. They sort of emit, uh, you know, a heavy fog. I admit it. I feel like a heavy fog in the house of my life. And that fog seeped into every room. Affected all my family members. Affected all of my, uh, all of my uh, friends. And so there's a number of things we, we, we can do to help somebody who's depressed. Is uh, You want to work through the list a little bit? Yeah, Simon? I would love that. And let me just say, you know, <clears throat> I, I think that one of the terms that I would use um, Bruce, when you talk about a heavy fog, there's an atmospheric change in the room when a genuinely depressed person is present. It it does it affects the atmosphere. Like you can feel it. I mean, if you're spiritually attuned at all, like you can feel it. And so, I mean, even in in our conversations, um, you know, for a period of time, you know, I was aware that something was wrong. But you know, again, like how do I say that? to my colleague and friend. Um, and so I, I want to, you know, just openly say, I appreciate your willingness to help me um, as I, you know, recognize that I'm going to have people in my life in the future um, who are going to be experiencing anxiety and depression uh, and, um, and PTSD. And all of these are helpful suggestions in terms of um, how we walk into those relationships. So let's take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to walk through this list um, of seven tips for friends and family members um, as we seek to faithfully engage with a depressed person. We're talking with Dr. Bruce Ashford. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, 
all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I will trust Hey, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Dr. Bruce Ashford about his own experience of depression and anxiety. Um, We are looking at a series of articles posted at bruceashford.net. I have concluded all the links in the show notes for today. So uh, wherever you subscribe to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen, those show notes will be there. They'll also be posted later today at myfaithradio.com. Talk with us, uh, Bruce, about this list. Um, For, you know, you've really developed this for those of us who have a friends and family members or coworkers who are experiencing depression and anxiety, and we want to walk faithfully with them in it. So take us through this list of, of seven, um, really, seven really good recommendations um, for those of us who want to come alongside, um, you know, people we love. Yeah. So if you're dealing with a depressed person, uh, you know, uh, you're going to have to learn uh, how, how to, uh, to not take things personally. Because a depressed person is a very difficult person to deal with. I was, uh, I, I look back at my uh, years of depression and ju- just uh, can feel how difficult I was to deal with. So if, you, if you're a friend or family member, the first thing I would say is prepare yourself to play the long game rather than the short game. Uh, meaning that if a depressed person, if a person is genuinely depressed, if they have sunk into a clinical depression, uh, they have exper- either experienced an event, a traumatic event, at an enormous level that, that triggered it, or the depression has been a long time building. And so you, as one person in their life, uh, you can't, you, you're not going to be able to uh, uh, pull them out of it quickly. It's not going to happen quickly. And uh, so uh, prepare yourself for the long game and uh, ask the Lord to give you sympathy and patience because patience is what it's, what it's going to take. Um, the second thing would be to view yourself as a facilitator more than a fixer. There is no fix for clinical, quick fix, magical fix for clinical depression. Um, It's been a long time coming. Uh, uh, The factors that caused a person to sink into depression, and it probably is going to be a relatively long time uh, before they pull out of it. And uh, one of the best things to do if you're a facilitator is to listen. Uh, When I say facilitator, you're, you're just one of the people that God has put into a depressed person's life to help them in their eventual emergence from depression. So you're facilitating, you're helping a bigger process that God is in charge of, rather than being the one person who can magically fix it. Third would be to approach conversation with a depressed person as an art rather than a science. Now, conversation with a depressed person can be infuriatingly difficult. I I just look back at my time um, in depression and realize just what an awful, uh, like, social pairing I was for any one person who wanted to, uh, to, to talk with me. But um, you know, you may want to just leverage your conversational opportunities to uh, uh, to listen, uh, if possible, bring a smile into their life, a hug, uh, encourage uh, them to seek help, maybe gently correct their future casting uh, where they see their future as being nothing but dark. Uh, that's how it feels to a depressed person. It, it feels that uh, all of the future is going to be bad, that they're never going to pull out of it. Um, the fourth thing would be to socialize, help socialize a depressed person instead of just, uh, you know, kind of confirming their isolation. Depressed people isolate. 
they withdraw uh, and so socialize them encourage them to remain uh, connected to their social circle maybe ask them to join you if you're going out to a movie going out shopping going to a ball game something like that and even if they decline it uh, the depressed person is going to remind them they haven't been forgotten mm. that there are people in their life who who like them um, a, a fifth tip is to make them smile instead of matching matching their uh, their melancholy um, I know, call this fighting so- I call this like atmospheric fighting like I'm gonna like right I'm gonna seek to affect the environment in the opposite way and at the same level of intensity that my depressed friend or family member is influencing the environment in a negative way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And when we, when we talk about, you know, the fifth point is uh, make them smile instead of uh, matching their melancholy. You know, on the one hand, you don't want to be aggressively chipper. You don't want to be a person who walks in the room and just like is like a foghorn of happiness because that is incredibly irritating and it's going to drive a depressed person away. However, in the middle of listening, the middle of being patient, be yourself, be positive, uh, maybe bring a little levity to the conversation, help, you know, help the person smile, uh, you know, uh, or maybe even laugh if you, if you get opportunity to do so. When I, you know, I was in the, I've had two periods of depression in my life, and one of them was in my 20s, and it lasted for six or seven years, and one of the... <laughs> few bright spots in my life were the times when I watched stand-up comedy or watched a funny movie and was able to laugh or shared some good good laughter with a friend. Laughter is an antidote to insanity. Humor is an, an antidote to insanity. And so it's it's also an antidote to depression. It's it's interesting um, to me. Si- it's just interesting to me how close together laughter and weeping are. Some I mean like I don't know I don't know how that works you know, in at the emotional level in the human being. But it seems to me that laughter and weeping are like, they are just next door neighbors on my emotional spectrum. Yeah, they, they like live, uh, there's a seam yes. uh, that, that sort of uh, ties those two phenomena, two phenomena closely together. <clears throat> um, you know, a sixth suggestion is to offer practical help instead of just practical words you know for a depressed person words just don't play that big of a role Hmm. no matter how well crafted well thought out your words are no matter how true they are they just don't usually play that much of a role they move the needle a little bit but not that much my experience sometimes practical actions are actually more helpful now um you might help them financially if they need some financial help. Maybe help a depressed person with some tasks. A depressed person usually has zero motivation. No motivation, even to do the smallest task. Wash the dishes, you know, straighten the house a little bit, pick up the groceries. There's just no motivation to do that. And so when you offer practical help, that does move the needle. Mm. Again, it's not a magical fix. It never will be. Um, you're a facilitator more than a fixer, but um, words instead of uh, actions instead of just words. And then finally, uh, the seventh point is really basically that words matter too. <clears throat> and it's that sometimes, and we got to be careful, we have to pray for wisdom, but it's best to interrupt a person's depression sometimes instead of confirming it 
or conforming to it, depressed person is going to catastrophize. They're going to feel like and assume that the depression they've got is just never going to go away because they've probably been experiencing it for a while. And they're going to feel like certain negative circumstances in their life are never really going to get better. They, they don't feel hope. And so interrupt their depression every once in a while and speak some truths to them that they may not be able to embrace at the moment uh, or may be difficult for them to embrace at the moment, but, you know, words that are that are true. So interrupt their flow of self-despair, self-despair, um, uh, despair, self-pity, um, their, their complaints about God and other people. Um, because a depressed person's interpretation of reality is skewed. And when you speak some truth into it, it helps over time show them their interpretation is skewed. So those are the seven tips. Um, yeah, I like the, um, you know, this this notion, um, this idea or metaphor that you offer us, this picture of this thick fog um, and it and it rolls and it's and it's it changes the way we feel about even where we are together. Um, and then you invite us to shine a steady light into that thick fog. And I thought about those fog lights um, on my car. And when I try to use my high beams in a fog, like I blind myself. It doesn't, it doesn't actually penetrate the fog at all. I like the idea of using like the slow, steady, low beam of the fog lights, um, you know, to, to see my way uh, forward in a relationship with a person that I love who is experiencing depression. Yeah, you know, if you imagine a, 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 a or a dark cloud, you know, there's a similar metaphor. If you imagine a, a dark cloud that hangs over your house for days, sometimes it emits lightning. Sometimes there's rolling thunder, but always there's darkness. Um, a friend or a family member, a depressed person is like a ray of sunshine that comes through that, that breaks through that dark cloud. And the words and actions that we engage in, in relation to a depressed person over time, are a cumulative series of like rays of sunshine, breaking the gloom, uh, providing a contrast to the lightning and the thunder, and uh, giving people a preview of what it's gonna be like one day when the sun really begins to shine again. So good. Bruce, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being so transparent. and. Um, you know, offering yourself up, right, uh, in this way um, to help us um, walk from darkness to light and to walk with those who are yet in darkness um, until the light does shine in a way that they can um, receive and respond to. So thank you so very much. You guys can find what we talked about today and so many other helpful resources at <coughs> bruceashford.net. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. So if you are paying any attention at all to what is happening in the world, you know, like, you know, dragons are a thing. Dragons are mythical. Um, dragons are metaphorical. And, you know, dragons are real. Hmm. They kind of look like dinosaurs, though. That's where I kind of go, you know. <laughs> Monsters. Monsters. Creatures yeah, of the yeah. deep. Leviathan. Yeah. Dragons. Yeah. What's up with dragons? I mean, they certainly appear in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. If you've read... The book of Job, if you've read um, certainly the book of Revelation, 
um, you know that there are references to dragons. You also know if you've read any great literature of the past, you know, even children know that dragons are real. So what does it take to slay a dragon? And why are dragons such a part of um, every culture's not only mythology, but understanding of the presence of evil? We're going to talk with Dan DeWitt next about this worldview question about why dragons have been such a prominent part of so many religions around the world over the course of human history. But then we're also going to talk with Dan about what it means not to just look at your theology, but to look through it. So what do you believe? Why do you believe it? And then do you really believe it because you live it? Mm -hmm. Can I tell by what you do what you actually think about God? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. to change the world. I'm Carmen LeBurge. I'm the host of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Dan DeWitt is one of my favorite people to talk with um, over the course of time. You can read what Dan is writing at theolatte.com. You can also find him at Southwest Baptist University these days. Um, Dan, good morning. Good morning. Carmen, I think we need to first and front and center deal with your new logo. Have you dealt with the new logo on the program yet? It's great. <laughs> well, thank you. I am. Um, I'm. I'm. You know. I'm moving into. I don't know what century we're in, but apparently, I needed some branding, and so I have a daughter-in-law who is a graphic designer, and she made that logo. And so now the logo is out there. If you follow me on social media, that's what Dan's talking about. Because apparently, instead of having a picture of myself, I'm supposed to have like a branded logo. And now I have a branded logo and it just says Carmen LeBurge. But the C and the L, if you look at the L, it looks like a little speaker's podium. I don't know. That, that was at least her idea. There you go. I think it's great. And you tell your daughter-in-law, <laughs> I do graphic design. For me, it's like a video game. It's how I like it's a release for me. So I love it, and I think she did an awesome job. I yeah. think it looks great. So Mary Scarlet Creative is her. Yeah, that's where she does her stuff. I want a T-shirt with the logo. Just that's, um, that's yeah. Fine. So um, she actually has designed a coffee mug that says "Coffee with Carmen." That's the oh my first goodness. little piece of merch. And of course, you at Theo Latte are definitely going to get one because I would yes. want you drinking out of the Coffee with Carmen mug while we're talking about Theo Latte. <laughs> I mean, like I can't, I can't even imagine a better um, connecting point. So hey. Thanks for noting that. That was super nice of you. So, um, all right, Dan, we're going to talk about dragons. So this article at Religion News caught my attention. Um, you know, why dragons have long been part of many religions. Here's what stood out to me in the article. First of all, that there is a person whose job it is to be an expert in, dra in uh, monsters. Like yes. That is what this person's job is, a monster expert. And then this monster expert who talking about the presence of dragons in religions across time completely ignores the dragons of the Bible. That was my that was my I, I'm like, I need to talk to Dan about this because clearly this person's operating out of a worldview that doesn't even allow for a biblical perspective at all. Well, and and two, in a piece for the for the for RNS for the Religion News Service. So it's not like it's the kind of platform where you couldn't make reference to um, biblical references, and the Bible being the most influential piece of literature in Western civilization. 
that would seem to be significant. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was crazy that she is a scholar of monsters, which is a really fun title. Like that's the kind of person that would be fun to just have on the show and say, what exactly do you get to do? Right. Like, wow. And because I know some not... monsters. I wonder if she, <laughs> yeah. you know, like is up on that. Um, well, and you may not realize, Carmen, I don't think that the reason you asked me to speak to this topic is for this reason, but I too am an expert in dragons. And so I've written a number of dragon stories for my kids, and it's been an annual tradition that I write a new dragon story for Christmas, of all things. And so I, I, I write and illustrate these little dragon stories, and I am a self-proclaimed dragon expert. Okay, so are the Dan DeWitt <laughs> dragon stories available? Because I feel like I've read several of your children's books, and I'm, I'm not sure that the dragon stories have made it into those forms. They are self-published, and I publish it through a little company that's pretty pricey because I, I publish oh, them as hardbacks. Oh, books. I'm now seeing yes. that. Yep. The Dragon in the Drain by Dan yes. DeWitt. The Dragon yep. in the Windy City. The Dragon in the Sea. Oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah. If, you, uh, if you just Google dragons and Dan DeWitt, this is what comes up. The Dragon in the Door. And All you right. could click on them and read them entirely for free. You don't want to order them. They're so pricey, only a parent who created it for their child would want to actually pay that price. But um, <laughs> speaking of the dragons in, the, in Emily Zarka's article, she's really just looking at human fascination with it. And she mm -hmm. talks about, um, if you think of Chinese celebrations, um, often you know the dragon will be um, kind of a preeminent focus of the celebration. And so she talks about how Christian missionaries at one point um, in China would adapt. And as you mentioned off the air, just give a different interpretation to the dragon. And so the dragon is no stranger to the biblical text that's mentioned. Um, some people would say that what Job talks about in terms of Leviathan and behemoth, um, could be kind of understood as a reference to this great monster that could be understood as something like a dragon. And then in Revelation, um, the John the Apostle speaks about how the, in the end of human history, the God will destroy the dragon. And there it's very clearly speaking of not a literal monster, physical beast, um, but really the um, icon of all chaos, Satan himself, that God will destroy evil in the end. Hmm. So when we think about dragons and we think about um, the dragons of, uh, you know, uh, that we would acknowledge exist, um, we're not necessarily talking about the same kinds of dragons that, let's say, in Chinese mythology are revered. We're kind of talking about the opposite reality. We're not revering dragons. We are, and we're also not fearing them in an illegitimate way. We're fearing them in a legitimate way, and we're acknowledging the superiority of Christ above all. Absolutely. And so when we get to the Bible, what we're looking at in Revelation is not a um, mythological um, understanding of a dragon. It's not a recognition of some kind of physical beast that we might describe in terms like a dragon, but it's actually evil itself. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to a physical beast— it's interesting that it wouldn't be until, you know, the, the idea, the mythology of dragons was developed long before any fossils were discovered of, of animals that would seem to be something like a dragon. And so why is it that you have humans with this deep kind of longing or, or need to talk about um, dragons even long before it would seem? We have evidence of, of a beast that could be described in those kind of categories. And then from an evolutionary standpoint, most 
secularists that I've read would say that, you know, the dragon ceased to exist long before humans developed. Now, I'm not contending for that from a biblical perspective, but why is it then that we have these human stories about these great beasts? And what we see in the Bible is the Bible uses this kind of language not to suggest that there really are fire-breathing dragons that are going to fly down from the sky, um, but rather that there's a force of evil in the world um, the evil's real, and one day evil will be defeated. Mm. So, um, Dan, let's pivot and let's talk about um, a piece that you have posted. I think we can deal with the um, "don't talk about others, punch them in the face" um, in you know in a couple of minutes because yep. it's very brief, but it's so good. Um, so, when you say "don't talk about others, but punch them in the face," <clears throat> what do you mean at theolatte.com? Well, if my kids happen to be listening in this morning, which I'm sure they're not, but this is not licensed to get in a fight today at school. <laughs> um, but rather, I've heard it said that friends don't stab you in the back. They stab you in the chest. And all of this makes for a pretty violent sounding <laughs> post. Um, but the psalmist in Psalm um, 145, verse 5, um, says that, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, which is what he's talking about here, not a physical strike. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, for my prayer will still be against the deeds of evildoers. And here the psalmist is saying, um, if I am rebuked for something I'm doing wrong and I need to be corrected, um, we need someone to do that in love, but we also want to have a disposition that we want to receive that. And this picture of oil on your head, while that sounds a bit messy, um, it's a picture of flourishing, that the way to flourishing is have people who are close enough to you that they could strike you in terms of telling you, you really need to stop this. And I've found in my life that the best way to do that, it, it, even as Bruce spoke about, not necessarily with sin issues, but with, with depression, which should not be confused as you know intrinsically sinful, the psalmist deals with depression. Um, but any, whatever's going on in our life, I found that someone coming alongside of us, just putting a hand on our shoulder, being there with us, whether it's something like depression that we may not have, we may have very little control over, or even if it's a sin issue that we do have control over in both situations, someone who knows us, is compassionate, and will walk with us, the psalmist says, this is like oil on my head. This is the path to flourishing. Mm, so good. Um, and if you've ever like had that experience of having, um, you know, oil poured on your head, like there is this um, calming effect. Mm. It's a calming effect. It's a, it's like you genuinely feel blessed. Um, so thank you for that. Um, we just talked um, earlier in the hour, Dan, with, um, um, with Bruce Ashford about his experience of depression and he's being really, open and vulnerable on um, a series in a series of articles on his website hmm. about that. And so what you have just shared resonates so well with the counsel that he just offered, you know, to those of us who do have loved ones who are experiencing depression or anxiety or even PTSD and how we faithfully walk with them and what it looks like to, you know, just be a consistent light, even on low beam shining in um, what for them is a very, very dark fog. Hmm. So, yeah, so thank you for the resonance um, with those two conversations today. Let's take a very, very brief break. When we come back, um, I want you to help us not just look at our theology, 
but look through it. What does it mean not only to say we believe some things about God, but to actually bear a living testimony to what we believe about God by what we do? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Continuing our conversation with Dan DeWitt, um, you can find him online at theolatte.com. That's where you'll find the Worldview Reader from which we are uh, drawing resources today. Again, theolatte.com. Dan, when we talk about theology, I have an espoused theology, what I say I believe, and then I have a theology in practice, the the theology that you can see based on my behavior. And so if I were going to use a headline link to this conversation today, it's one thing to say you are pro-life, um, ardently pro-life, that you would support pro-life agendas in Congress should you be elected. It's another thing to pay for an abortion. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So without uh, reference to any particular individual, I will use that as my, okay, you have an espoused theology, what you say you believe, but your your real theology is showing by what you do and how you live. Yeah, it reminds me of a comment I heard in seminary, a guy said, he said, I think you need a little you need to get a little bit of duology with your theology. Nice. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's really good. I'm stealing So I, I think a sign that we are um, looking at our beliefs rather than looking through them is when we isolate them and we really kind of um, arbitrarily use them with these kind of hot topic issues that we like, that we care about. So politicians will sometimes do that to say about a particular value. It really matters as it relates to this, but there's no way in which they're, that's actually providing a lens through which they see other related issues, um, closely related issues. As Christians, we regularly do this. We, um, instead of looking through a particular value, we um, kind of apply it where it serves us best. Imagine, I, I start with the example of um, sunglasses. Imagine you bought, you're going to the beach, and you do a little bit of research on Amazon. You're looking at reviews. You find the very best possible sunglasses you could take on your beach vacation. And then not only are you looking at the reviews for the quality of the sunglasses, you look for the style. You know, you want to look good. And you go to the beach, you roll your blanket out there, and uh, you plop yourself down, and you take those sunglasses out, and set them on your beach blanket, and you just stare at them. I mean, that would be absolutely absurd, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what you you bought them for. But I think sometimes we treat our theology that way. Um, And so here you are at the beach, you could hear the, the waves crashing in front of you, and you're just staring at your sunglasses. Well, your goal with the sunglasses would be to put them on and to see the world through them. And so the way that Christians sometimes will do this will say, look at this beautiful, shiny doctrine 
of what it means to be created in the image of God. Like, let's look at that. Um, but then refuse to look at our neighbor through those lenses. Uh, and that's how you could have something like, and it pains me to admit this because I love my seminary, Southern Seminary, where I graduated from. But when it was founded um, back in 1859, you had founders who, the founders of the seminary, who could look at the doctrine of the Imago, the Imago Dei, which means to be created in God's image, and say, and they could talk about the wonders of this biblical doctrine, but turn and look at people who are a different skin color than they are and say that person's not human. Mm. And they could advocate for um, slavery. And those are an extreme example, perhaps, but not that distant. And it's a reminder, we need to let these doctrines not be something we look at, but they need to completely change the way we see the world. So you talk about um, a couple of examples here. One is the Imago Dei example, um, and then you have this um, this other example that I think is, is helpful. And again, we're talking with Dan Duet. We're talking about the difference between looking at our theology and actually looking through it, using what we know about the character and ways of God to actually then behave in ways, live in ways that are consistent with um, you know, that theological understanding. It's a lived theology conversation. So Dan says this in his piece at theolate.com, don't just look at your theology, uh, look through it. It's a good thing uh, to think deeply about the effects of the fall, but do you see the sins of others through the lens of fallenness? Does the reality of sin frame how you think about the guy who cuts you off in traffic? Or do you mainly see yourself as struggling with sin while everyone else is just a jerk? It's really helpful. Like my um, husband, Jim, had an experience in traffic a few weeks ago. And um, somebody like not just they didn't just cut him off. They flipped him off. Yeah. And um, and Jim, you know, he he was sharing with me that like he got, you know, you know, you get angry. Like there's this weird visceral response. You're like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I'm in my lane. I'm driving appropriately. Like that guy is a jerk. Right. And then the gym had this like, you know, gentle nudge (laughs) or maybe harder than a gentle nudge by this, by the Holy spirit. And he was just like really convicted. Like if, you know, how, how many things have I done in my life where I have cut God off? I -hmm. have even in my life in some way flipped God off, like, right? Um, And yet God offers me grace because he sees me as as who I am, not only as his precious child, but a fallen man in, you know, in need of grace and forgiveness. And so if God can respond to me Hmm. with grace, you know, who am I to not respond to that jerk in traffic in the same way? And what I hear you saying is I need to recognize the fallenness of that other individual, um, as as quickly and as readily as I recognize, oh, I'm fallen and therefore I need grace and thank God there is grace in Jesus Christ. Like, right, I need to offer to others what I have received. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if, we, if we're myopic with the way that we selectively apply our biblical values, we could be really, really pretentious, self-righteous, wicked people. <laughs> but when we start seeing the whole world through the lens of the Bible— then we have to see ourselves in that context, that I'm broken and I'm fallen and I, I need people. I have a lot of needs and I'm going to sin against people. I, I not only need forgiveness from God, but from others. But then also we begin to see that, you know, other people made in God's image um, are wrestling with things today. And so what we what we constantly need to do 
is immerse ourselves in the text of the Bible and then to begin to see the world as the biblical authors see the world. And so you don't see the biblical authors selectively talking about a particular doctrine only as it applies to whatever the hot topic of you know political discussion is for the day, but rather seeing all of the world through this lens. And so I would encourage everyone today to just start thinking about what do I believe to be true, see others through that lens, and maybe for some of you listening, you need to look in the mirror today and see yourself through the lens of God's love and God's forgiveness, whatever you're struggling with. Um, you will never, ever, one doctrine specifically, the fact that God knows everything, you'll never do something that will shock God mm. or make him embarrassed of you. So start seeing yourself through that lens, and that'd be a great way of applying this conversation. That's so helpful. That's so good. Hey, there's so much more um, at theolatte.com. You should check it out. The Worldview Reader includes lots of good things for you to not only read, but listen to and watch. Always good um, book reminders as well. You know, not necessarily something that's just been published in the last week, but something that um, Dan finds helpful on the particular subject that he's talking about um, across a range of um, resources. So check it all out, theolatte.com. Dan, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Carmen. Such a delight. And hey, um, we're going to start referring to him as our resident expert on dragons. <laughs> Since add that to his title. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. quick uh, Friday farm report here. Um, all right. From David in the Fargo-Moorhead area on the text line this morning at 877-933-2484. I have been notified that we have moved from the cultivation of wheat to the harvesting of sugar beets. Dun, dun, dun. It is that time up there. Yes. It's apparently sugar beet harvest time. So oh, David, yeah. thank you for um, that Friday farm report from your region of the world. It's also apple time. And I only know this because I stopped at an apple orchard yesterday and got some apple donuts, which I don't know, but I highly recommend. In Tennessee, let me just say this, um, on our farm, we need rain pretty desperately. Everything is very, very brown. So, um, you know, it's parched. (sighs) Um, And this weekend, I will be putting the lights back in the chicken coop because nobody is producing eggs. It's now that time of year where it's just too dark. Right. So they got to have 14 hours of of light in order to produce an egg. And so, you know, now it's like an egg every other day, which, you know, that's not enough. So there you go. Putting the light in the chicken coop at the farm. And um, oh, we did harvest our sweet potatoes. I don't know if I reported on that, but we had an excellent sweet potato harvest at the LaBerge um, home. And they are uh, sitting now sweetening up for their 10 days at 80 percent humidity and hopefully around 80 degrees in the greenhouse. There you go. Super sweet. Hey, we got another hour up next. Stick around. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.